This is Fundraising Radio, and today is a guest speaker. We have Philip Chebotar, Chief Operating Officer at Cambridge SPG, and Paulina Chebotarva, Managing Partner of Cambridge SPG. And this episode will touch on to real estate investing, and then we'll move on to general VC funding, how to get this funding, how to you know, switch uh, from real estate to VC, etc. So let's start with Philippe. Uh, hello, hello. Kick it off from uh, giving us some of your background and some background on Cambridge SPG. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it seems like only yesterday, but it was 2010 uh, when Polina and I both quit our jobs um, and started Cambridge SPG. And at the time, we were in our Polina, would you say we were in our early twenties or mid twenties or late twenties? I'd say late twenties. Well, well, I'm older than you, so I I was definitely in my uh, mid twenties or late twenties because. I'm 36. <laughs> but you... Personal information. So, you know, we were in our 20s. Let's just... <laughs> um, and we uh, so and we started Cambridge SPG to um, invest in and acquire distressed real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to that, we both had corporate jobs. Um, we were both uh, had amazing jobs and had a great time. But um, when the real estate market, you know, really, really crashed... And, you know, in 2008, 2009, by 2010, things were still really bad. Um, half the people, right, half of uh, the investors were trying to buy as much real estate as possible. And the other half thought that it was going to be worth even less in 2011 and 12. And um, we obviously believed that it would in- increase. And so we started raising capital um, in uh, late 2010. And over a five and a half year period, we ended up raising 350 million of equity. Uh, we acquired 44 large distressed real estate assets on the West Coast, mostly in California and Nevada. Um, and since then have divested out of 42 of the 44 and we have one in escrow right now. Um, and that was a great experience of really understanding how to raise capital, I would say, uh, because real estate itself it's very quantitative. It's very easy to understand, right? You have the location. You can see what the rents um, are in the area. And you can, you know, pretty accurately project what rental rates you will get for your property. Um, and then determine the cap rate, which is the multiple uh, of which the property sells at, right? Multiple on the net operating income. Um, so the... You know, we really learned how to raise capital during that time um, from both high net worth individuals, family offices, um, and some corporate investors as well. So before we move on to actually discussing what uh, Cambridge SPG invests in and how you raise capital for that uh, fund, I was wondering, what do you invest in right now? So, Polina, actually, never mind. I missed the question. So, first of all, I wanted to talk about the difference between the current crisis of 2020 because of the pandemic and the crisis of 2008. And that's the question for Polina because, you know, as she said, she was older back in the day. So, I assume she knows more. What, I'm older and wiser? <laughs> always, always knows more. <laughs> well, um, I mean, there's no doubt that there is a crisis going on now, but... Um, it was very different. I mean, the crisis caused in 2007, 8, 9 was, um, you know, started in real estate 
and uh, the opportunities that were that were in effect afterwards were in real estate. Um, we were picking up properties for 10, 15 cents on the dollar. Um, very different from today's world. It's uh, has nothing to really do with real estate. Real estate might take uh, an impact because of this, but obviously the crisis started with this COVID-19 uh, followed by current political um, things going on. <laughs> so, well, and I'm here to say that the, that the financial crisis of 2020 is officially on pause since today Cheesecake Factory is up 20%. <laughs> but we actually do for a little recession. I mean, it goes in cycles, you know. There's, you know, they say ten to twelve year cycles, so we're due for something. Um, I like your joke, Phil, but seriously, yep. <laughs> I, I genuinely enjoyed that one. You know, I'm just gonna remove my second screen tracking all those uh, S and P five hundred and all that. You should turn on your screen. You should turn on your screen, and Phil will send you the picture of the girl that represents this. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on back to our topic, uh, which is fundraising. So, uh, one of the questions that I get pretty frequently is from early stage founders who have a co-founder or a partner in their venture uh, being their relative. So a lot of concerns are raised by that from an investor perspective. So sometimes investors feel uncomfortable investing in companies that have two relatives working as a core team. Do you feel the same applied to you when you were raising your money? Uh, um, quite the opposite. I, I feel like, how would you, what about you, Phil? I mean, I think that we have such a good perspective in the dynamic, like, uh, especially on the consumer side, what we're currently focusing on now, we have this female and male perspective. Um, also, we've been working together for so long, we kind of bounce the same ideas off of one another, but then bring different perspectives to it as well. I've never yeah. ever felt any type of um, disadvantage of of um, being partners with Philip or feeling that any of our investors felt that that was a disadvantage. So I don't know. Yeah, Phillip, I what agree. About you? No, no, I, I, I completely it's agree. Been a I plus think, for us. Yeah, I think if anything, right, it's either been neutral or a positive. Um, yeah. Got it. So. Basically, your recommendation to those founders asking the question is go for it, you know, go ahead with your relative and do the company, right? Well, I would say so there's there's actually quite a few examples um, of actual family businesses that have become very successful businesses. Uh, one of them. Uh, so we are an investor in a company called Toasty Superbites, and it was founded by a mother and daughter team. Um, they started it literally in their garage, um, nice. you know, until until their neighbors got sick and tired of the UPS truck coming up to pick up, <laughs> you know, hundreds of boxes. Then they moved into an office um, and have since grown into one of the fastest growing snack companies in the country. Um, and they're still right. It's still a mother daughter founded team. Um, and then, you know, another one that comes to mind is a company also in California called perfect bar uh so that company recently sold to mondelez but it's like eight siblings that started oh. the company there's like eight of them yeah. so, <laughs> and they raised you know they're very oh, successful they raised a very successful round uh from bmg which is one of uh 
you know, the top tier firms and consumer and then, you know, had an exit with Mondelez. So I would say, right, it's it's less about trying to see, you know, what the perception would be or, right, if something works, right, and you have this aligned mission, um, just go for it. And I think that's why Polina and I have been able to work together is because we both see eye to eye. We do have a different perspective, but we have the same goal. And so it's been very you know, positive working together. Yeah, that's yeah. our advantage, I believe. So. Got it, got it. So here I wanted to ask you a question. How did you decide? So eventually, in, essentially, you were uh, the real estate investors and then you switched investing in startups. I'm wondering how did this happen? So I'm personally a big fan of, you know, alternative sources of capital. I think that VCs get way too much attention and that you know, paying some people who might have money and who might be interested in investing in startups is a great idea. So how did this happen to you? How did you decide, like, all right, now is the time for us to write first check to this startup? So it was, I would say it was a year and a half long uh, process. And what was happening, so in 2015 and 16, we were very busy divesting, right? Selling the real estate that we were able to acquire, um, 2010 through 14. But, um, so Polina and I had a little startup called Slim's Organics where we were trying to make a hundred calorie egg white based like pop snack. And it was, it was like a weekend, you know, on the side project. We were working with a, you know, food scientist and, um, so we're always passionate about food and um, health and wellness. Um, and then as I remember, as we were closing one of our last real estate deals, um, we got a call uh, from, from a guy named Jeremy. Um, and he would pitch us deals all the time. And, um, you know, he pitched us like five deals. And there were kind of special situations. Like one was, um, a distressed company that took on like $9 million of debt that they shouldn't have. And they needed, you know, a white knight investor to come in in the next 30 day, days and bail them out. We're like, that's not us. Um, and he goes through these scenarios and nothing sounds interesting. And then he brings up a company called Foodsters. And, you know, Foodsters at that time was very small business, less than a million um, in Santa Monica. And they were making organic non-GMO bake mix and baked goods and, and selling online. it online. Only online. Yep. Um, and so we were interested in food. Um, and we always just kind of knew like qualitatively that you can make money in uh, consumer products. Um, you know, we went to UCI where the UCI has the Paul Mirage School of Business and Paul Mirage uh, sold Hot Pockets to Nestle for $2.6 billion dollars. Um, so we knew that, you know, you can have a big exit in this sector. Um, and then he mentioned that Sarah Michelle Geller, Buffy, the vampire slayer was one of the co-founders. And we said, look, we're going to do the deal. Uh, as long as we can get a picture with Buffy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, <laughs> so he invited, so he invited us to meet the team in Santa Monica. And I mean, honestly, it was because Sarah Michelle Geller was a founder. We were said, okay, let's go to Santa Monica. You know, we'll, We'll listen to the deal if, uh, you know, whether it's a good deal or not, whether, you know, we'll learn and we'll meet Buffy the Vampire Slayer and maybe get a cool picture for social media. Um, and so we went and we were blown away. I mean, you know, Galit uh, is the founder and Greg, 
um, who's now the CEO of the company, Greg Fleischman, and Sarah. Um, they just, you know, we're very confident that they will take over this very stagnant uh, category, which at the time was dominated by, you know, Duncan Hines, Pillsbury, and Betty Crocker, these brands that haven't seen any innovation, um, you know, for five decades. Um, and they really had a unique offering that was clean label, organic, um, had very unique offerings. And so we ended up leading uh, their Series A. And what happened was Polina and I were just going to invest um, ourselves. So we were going to invest... Right. Um, And then our investors, our real estate investors, um, you know, constantly check in and say, what's the next deal? What's going on? What are you seeing? And so we'd say, well, you know, we're we're not seeing any real estate deals, but we are investing in this company. (laughs) And they will tell me about this company. And so we would tell them why we're investing in this company. And so they'd say, well, can we also invest? And so we realized that it's the same business, right? Like the, the money that we were raising for real estate, we would put together an LLC, raise, you know, however much, let's just say $5 million to buy a $5 million asset. Now, instead of, right, we still you know, formed an LLC, raised a few million dollars, and instead of buying a real estate asset, bought equity in a company. Um, so that's how it all started. And then our second deal, of course, was Once Upon a Farm. Uh, which was a tiny, tiny company in a garage in San Diego doing $400,000 of annual revenue. Uh, had a very high burden rate. Um, but they had the best product uh, in the industry. They're making cold-pressed fresh baby food. Um, so using high-pressure pasteurization to give fresh baby food 120-day shelf life refrigerated. Um, and it really was a unique product. Very big need in the marketplace for it. Um, and Ari, Roz, and Cassandra Curtis were the original founders. And they just did an incredible job with the brand, the positioning, the SKUs. Um, but it was very difficult for them to get it off the ground because retailers didn't know where to put the product. It's baby food that didn't go in the baby food aisle. Um, you're dealing with a refrigerated supply chain. Um, and so there was just a lot of because it was a new category, it was very difficult to navigate for all of us. Um, so, but we ended up leading their Series A round uh, as our second deal, and then over the next seven months, uh, you know, we were able to help bring in Jennifer Garner as a major investor and co-founder into the business. And then through that process, John Foraker uh, became the CEO, and John's background is he built a company called Annie's Organics. Um, It's one of the biggest and first natural organic brands uh, in the country. He had a big exit to General Mills, um, sold it for $820 And then resigned and became CEO of Once Upon a Farm. And since then, the company has had over 25x revenue growth in 24 months. Um, It's one of the fastest growing companies in the whole industry. Um, And... You know, so that was our second deal. And since then, we've invested in over two dozen uh, fast-growing CPG brands in food, beverage, personal care, and beauty. Got it. And before we go too deep in your, into your deal flow, I was actually going to ask you a question that keep bugging me the whole time you were talking. Uh, Jeremy, who is that guy who gave you that first deal? Who, who He's was a that? business broker. He's a business broker. Um, 
So similar to any agent that sells you real estate, there's also business brokers that deal with uh, representing business owners or ca- uh, people that raise capital for like a seed stage or a series A. So. All right. Can we go in depth into business broker? Who the hell is business broker? Because I'm personally not even sure if I know that the answer for that question. Can you explain us what a business broker is more specifically? Yes. So, so for example, um, when companies go out to raise capital, um, or they go to sell, or they're looking for a strategic uh, deal, right? So whether they're looking for money, right, an investment or they're looking to partner, let's say um, a beverage company uh, wants to improve their margins, right? They're really good at sales and marketing, um, getting new distribution, but they're not very good at manufacturing supply chain production. So they may look for a strategic partner to partner up with who has a really strong manufacturing, right? And can improve their margins. And then they can just focus on sales and marketing Um, or they're looking to sell their business to either a private equity firm or to a manufacturer, to a larger company. Um, they'll, they'll sometimes utilize, you know, either business brokers or, you know, finders. And it's these, uh, sometimes individuals, sometimes it's, you know, a firm, uh, like an investment banking firm, um, that goes out and solicits that interest. It's very similar to a, an agent that you would hire to buy or sell a home. Mm-hmm. All right. And I so just realized that uh, focus uh, in their network is in this realm versus uh, in real estate, for example. Like this one was more focused on consumer and specifically in food and beverage. Got it. And I just realized that actually did interview a business broker. I did not know that the official title is business broker. I just called them brokers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's a pretty interesting topic and we'll not go into that topic because I was wondering how do you source those deals so first deal was sourced through that business broker and then it moved on so how are you doing this right now how do you find those uh, deals so I know Philippe definitely likes uh, garage based startups because I've heard garage <laughs> twice <laughs> are you yeah. in this podcast and but other than finding those entrepreneurs in garages you know how do you find them well you know we're very deeply networked in um everywhere from word of mouth from our other friends in the vc community we're in several deals together alongside of other vcs so we're constantly you know just discussing deal flow what we're currently working on as well as we go to a lot of industry events uh project nosh founder made Uh, all of the expos, um, there's also business brokers that we utilize. But I would say that it's a combination of all of them. You know, when you're networking, you kind of follow some deals, maybe sometimes for two years, and then they're ripe for you. But maybe not in the first time you've, you've met the company or the founders at mm-hmm. a trade, let's just say. So... so- How long, so one of the questions that I get pretty frequently is how long should you work with an investor to get, you know, this something that you can call an established relationship? My personal recommendation is like a year or so of somewhat constant content. But what's your advice for them? So when do you feel like, yeah, I know this guy for for oh, a while. That's so, deal specific. that's so deal specific because we've seen 
deals that were just too good to pass up and they we had to jump on it and thank god we did like Purve revo which we invested within like three weeks we closed that round and thank god we did because within a year and a half we already had an exit with it nice a very successful one but if we didn't jump on it right away you know and dilly dallied maybe we would have passed that up um but then there's other ones that we really nourished that relationship for a good year and a half sometimes just to really see you know if they're following the trajectory if they're building the team if the revenues are up if they're improving their margin profile and just all other um parameters that we kind of look at got it so while we're talking about the deal flow i was actually going to ask you a question about cold emails or somewhat cold emails. So how do you react to those introductions? So if someone who does not know you personally and he, he or she cannot get an introduction to you through another founder or through another investor, and they just send you an email saying like, hey, I I, know, I saw your website, it looks pretty interesting. Can you take a look at my, at my presentation? Do you respond to those or do you spam them? Bill, you want me to get this one or you? Because <laughs> we do get this all the time. We, our mailbox is bombarded with thousands of deals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could, I could answer, or you can. I'm, uh, uh, doesn't matter. I mean, so we do get deals, cold calls all the time, uh, which I think it's nice. You know, somebody that really is looking to raise funds and they're passionate about their company, they should source and try to find any which way to get to a VC. Um, that's actually what separates the winners from losers, right? Some people go, well, I don't know anybody. And that's the first roadblock that they put in front of themselves. So I think that that's nice that they are courageous and that they're going out and trying to find fill up our eye, um, let's just say on LinkedIn or some other form where they can just contact us. Okay, so they do. Um, I do have to say that if it's a warm introduction, at least find like some type of a way to get to us where it's through someone. That definitely sets you apart from the thousands of cold calls that we get. But again, it all has to do with the deal. You know, I we have seen uh, people contact us where we don't know them, but something is compelling about what they're trying to pitch. And Philip and I get on the phone and we go through their deal and then we spend some time doing research, doing diligence. And if the deal is compelling, if it came just like a, from a cold call, then so be it. But it does have to kind of deal, do with the deal itself, the product, the team, uh, all the numbers and... Mm -hmm. Let's see, am I leaving anything else out though? No, I would say is in any investment, and that, that goes for anybody reaching out to us or when we work with our limited partners. And any time, so as Polina said, any time that the introduction can come from a trusted source or a personal relationship, um, that deal is just going to get a lot more attention. It doesn't yes, mean that like, the, deal, the deal still has to be good, right? The deal right. still has to be ready everything about it, but it's prioritized. Right. And think, and right. Think about this, right. Constantine, let's say, um, you get a random email one day and it's describing an investment and someone says, look, there's 250,000 left in this deal. Uh, and this is all in an email. You've never, you don't know them. You don't really understand the sector and they're just pitching this email. You're probably not going to respond to it. 
you're probably just going to delete it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, let's say, you know, a close friend of yours or somebody that you've done multiple deals with, right, mm -hmm. calls you and says, hey, let me tell you, I just invested in this company. Here's what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. You should jump in on it, right? You're going to take a look, right, because it's your close friend or it's somebody that you respect professionally is telling you about this deal, you're going to pay a lot more attention to it than just a random email. So right. keep that in mind, right? People, right? We're all people and we all have the same kind of biases. And when the introduction or the referral is coming from a trusted source and a close source, it's, it's just going to be prioritized in our minds. Absolutely. And I wanted to move on. So as we're reaching our three minutes, uh, timeline i want to ask you what's going on with you and investing right now during the pandemic so are you following your strategy from 2008 where you're you know just buying uh, distressed real estate or are you waiting for the dust to settle down and then you will start investing back in startups uh so we're not waiting for the dust to settle so over the last 45 days we've invested over 10 million in four four financing rounds um, one new deal, three follow-ons. Um, so we've been very active mm -hmm. and we saw, so the way that we saw the pandemic from an economic standpoint as, as a black swan event, um, versus a right fundamental shift in, uh, economic conditions, um, and also the industry where we're investing in is consumer products, right? In food, beverage, um, personal care, products that are sold in grocery stores and online. And those products, the sales have just surged. So, you know, on the one hand, um, it's, it's actually been a better business environment for the consumer products industry, not fully, but to, to, you know, to many degrees. Um, and then as far as distressed real estate, so naturally we looked, uh, we, you know, we wanted to see what's going on in the market and there's no distressed real estate out there. We looked, it doesn't exist. And it's a little bit stagnant because sellers, um, you know, well, the buyers don't want to pay the same price they did before the pandemic started. They want, you know, a 15, 20% discount and sellers aren't willing to sell at a discount. So the transactions are just, right, the volume of transaction has decreased, but, you know, the fundamentals are still there. So, um, and then as I said earlier, you know, Cheesecake Factory is up 20%. I think we can <laughs> say that the recovery is so well on its way. <laughs> I will also add to this topic by just saying, um, you know, some of the companies that were on our radar in diligence, um, where we kind of wanted to see what will happen to them, really proved themselves out during this time. I think that this was a very crucial moment where it was the survival of the fittest. Um, we really saw, like, who folded their cards and who just took advantage and improved every which way from from their budget spend to improving their margins to increasing sales to just really like coming out of this in the most positive way and then reattracting us back to the opportunity of uh, possibly investing in those brands uh, in our next you know few months got it got it that's a 
really interesting approach. And we, I mean, I have a last question for two of you. And this, in this case, is going to be two call to action. So be ready to listen to those. So call to action to our listeners. What's your recommendation? What do you think is that one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as this episode is over that should you know, bring them closer to success in whatever way you find success, preferably receiving a check from an investor? What's that one thing that you want them to do? I think um, know your numbers and know your listeners. So if you're coming to pitch to a VC versus, um, you know, a friend's round, clearly you have to have a lot more organized approach to doing so. So know um, what the VCs are looking for and checking off their boxes before you come and ask them as if they are friends and family. Um, There's obviously a lot more that goes into the diligence from a VC standpoint than a mom and pop or a friend round where it's more emotionally driven, right? It's more qualitative mm-hmm. versus quantitative. So that would be my advice. And Philip? Yeah, I would, I would say, um, and this is, I've used this example before, um, but I say you have to have your dots in place. And so Right. Well, so whoever is looking at the dots can very easily connect them and put them together. Right. And it kind of goes to luck favors those who are prepared. Um, And if you go into a meeting with an investor um, not prepared, right, just kind of hoping that uh, your story will get them to write a big check, chances are that, you know, they're not going to they're not going to revisit your deal over and over again. So um, as Selena said, be prepared. Make sure you know your business uh, inside and out. You know every single KPI, every single number. Um, you know your customer acquisition costs, your margins, your contribution margin per channel. Um, just right, know uh, all those numbers like they are uh, second nature, because that's really going to demonstrate um, that you're very competent and right. You your stra- it, it ties in the entire strategy. Um, when you know what's going on uh, with every aspect of your business. And then, of course, set a reasonable valuation. Um, make sure that your valuation is in line with um, what's market. Don't go too low because going too low uh, would raise some eyebrows. Like, why are you valuing it so low? But also don't raise it, you know, don't set a valuation that's too high, which makes you look, right, unrealistic and, well, it um, might also disrupt your business in the future because obviously you might have to raise higher and higher. And if the revenues don't project the valuation in the future, you might have to have a, a, a down round, which would tremendously right. hurt you in the future. So you really have to be careful with valuation. So I definitely agree with Phil that that's definitely something to be weary of. So while break my own rules, will extend our episode a little bit further from 30 minutes to probably 35. I'll ask you that question. You both mentioned valuations, and I think that's super important part. What's your advice on valuation? Is there like a book? Is there a strategy for people to follow? Because uh, often evaluating your company is extremely hard, especially if you have a product, but you don't have sales yet. Well, so so for consumer products, right? So, you know, not not commenting on tech or you know life sciences or biotech or, but in in CPG, 
a pre-revenue company. Um, so very, very early stage where maybe it's to develop the product. Um, oftentimes we've seen uh, a valuation between half a million and a million. Okay. That's, you know, very, very early stage. Mm-hmm. Um, market. Yeah. I think once you, once you have your product developed and maybe you, you have some sales, right? It can, it can raise to 2 million and 3 million. Now that doesn't mean that your company is actually worth 1 million or 2 million or 3 million, because if you go to sell the company, right, it's liquidation value is probably zero. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But there's no sale. The way, right. But the way that the valuation works is right, it's it's giving credit for the work that has been put in and, and the business plan that has been established and executed on, but also, right, it's assuming you're paying as an investor a little bit of a premium for the growth that the capital that you invest is going to create. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, let's say you're a hundred thousand dollar revenue business, but if we invest one million, that one million will create five million in revenue. So, right, the, the valuation it's it's very much um, more of an art form than a science, but mm-hmm. it has to make sense, right? Because at the end of the day, the investor uh, needs to make money. If it's a fund like ours, our limited partners need to make money. And we need to make money. And we, so we and most funds make 20% of the profit that we're able to generate for our investors. Mm-hmm. So if we invest 1 million and it doubles, right? We create 1 million of profit. Our investors make 800,000 and we make 200,000. Mm-hmm. Right. Now let's say we invest 1 million and it does 10x, right? Then that number could be uh, 2 million. Or if we invest ten million in a two X's, um, then we would get twenty percent of the ten, and the investors would get eight. So the deal has to make sense, right? Because there's all these waterfalls that need to be considered, right? And on a personal note, I want to mention that after a couple of uh, pitches to investors, if your valuation is off, they will tell you. Trust me, they will tell you. So no worries. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. Philip and Pauline agree with me on on this positive note. We'll wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Philip and Polina, for coming up and for sharing your experience. I think that was a really fun journey of yours. So thanks for sharing it. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us.